Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. our new sign-on for 2018. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Blog Talk. <laughs> You're listening to Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio <laughs> and Affiliate Network. <laughs> We've been awake too long, Fred. Yes, uh, and, you have. Uh, and so have I. Yes, yes we have. So uh, uh, brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And in the virtual studio today is my trusted colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Hello, Fred. Hello, Greg, and uh, I hope you had a safe and happy new year, and uh, let's hope 2018 turns out to be an even better year for all of us and for those throughout the country and the world. Well, I say amen to that, my friend. And uh, if it kicks off where it left in 2017, we're into a rather banner year for uh, zeitgeist shifts uh, in the industry. So uh, for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the Best Practices Review Panel for the Institute for Medicaid Innovations. He is also past chair and former board member of the Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter as at FS Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACLWatch.com, HealthInnovationMedia.com, and PrecisionMedicine.Center. So this is our first broadcast for 2018, and from the looks of it, likely to be a banner year for health innovation, population health, tech-fueled disruptive business models, and more. So with that out of the way, Fred, um, what is uh, first up for the list of uh, items in the news that you want to discuss? Well, I think it's really interesting. You said uh, 2017 sort of finished, but there's sort of a bang as we get into 2018. There's so much going on in healthcare right now, it's sort of in every sector, that it's tough to narrow it down, but there were some key things that happened sort of at the end of the year that I think are, are impactful and need to be looked at. And the first one I'd like to get into is uh, this uh, judge ruled in the EEOC uh, lawsuit filed by the uh, ARP over wellness programs. And there's been this ongoing debate about the use of wellness programs, the value of those programs. And in particular, uh, people have been honing in on this idea that you can set up a premium differential of up to 30% and and still claim that that program is voluntary and that the individual has voluntarily agreed to turn over data associated with their health. Um, and uh, the judge had made a, a, a an earlier ruling that uh, d- he didn't think that that was really voluntary and then suddenly came out at the end of December and said, look, this is a this is a problem from my perspective. I don't I do not think this is voluntary, and the uh, EEOC needs to rewrite this rule uh, by 2019. And the EEOC was actually looking for multiple years 
up to three before they had to rewrite the rule. And he sort of reversed his earlier decision and came out and said, no, I think this issue of voluntary is critical. And when you're telling somebody that they may have to pay up to 30% of a healthcare premium of say $5,000 and, and claim that that's voluntary, it's really not. So I think it's going to be an interesting situation for uh, wellness vendors. Obviously it was a little late as he said to change it for 2018. Um, as we were right up on new benefits rolling out these last couple of days, um, but clearly uh, made it clear to the EEOC that something needs to happen. It needs to happen quickly. So, so I this found is that important. So, so this is important for wellness companies, for population health management uh, uh, company vendors. Um, is that correct? Yeah, I think uh, wellness companies as well as employers who have been, you know, continuing to buy into wellness uh, uh, products and ideas for their employees as a way to so-called improve their health and reduce their risks, although there's still limited data to show that wellness programs actually control costs. Um, and uh, if you begin to then tinker with these incentives and say you can't do, a, say, a 30% uh, differential you'll see participation rates drop like a rock in these products. So it may lead to a difference in the market in 2019 as to how aggressively employers look at these types of programs and are willing to invest uh, these dollars into them. And is this reflected in lower premiums, lower co-pays, co-insurance in the event they enroll in these wellness programs? How does it, quote, reward the participants? So what will happen is the... Uh, the the employer will 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 sell this as a as a carrot. Well, our premiums are going up, you know, and you're going to have to pay uh, up to fifteen hundred dollars out of pocket. But if you enroll in this wellness program, uh, we'll reduce that. You won't have to pay it, which you can look at as a carrot, but in a, in effect, it's actually a stick. Um, and that's sort of what the uh, the AARP was arguing is that this is uh is not voluntary, and so. It, it it was a way to push individuals to get them involved um, and then do their lab and biometrics and, you know, talk to a coach or get involved in these various uh, other initiatives to improve their health, watch their diet. Um, but as I said earlier, the, the, most of the studies, particularly RAND, uh, did a very large one in this area and found essentially no savings associated with a wellness program, although they did identify savings in the PepsiCo study for people who were in a chronic disease management program where obviously you have additional expenses and potentials for ER visits and uh, hospitalizations and pharmaceutical costs, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. but, but those in the, in the straight wellness program were not. So I think this next year is going to give employers a real chance to take a look at what really does work and not, and maybe rethink some of these things because right. the incentive won't be there for them to push enrollment through these um, through these uh, wellness programs and, and claim it's voluntary, which was which was also sort of a way to pass on potentially pass on costs to an employee yeah. for not participating. Good, good. So this this yeah. will set up round two for Al Lewis and Ron Getzel. Yeah, exactly. Um, although I think Al Lewis is actually, for those, if people do search it on Google, he wrote a very good piece explaining it. Um, it's out there, and we could possibly put the link up on the website for people to take a look at that and, and see what Al has to say about it. But he's obviously been putting this out through his LinkedIn and other uh, accounts. Yeah, no surprises there. So what's next, Fred? No. So the next thing I want to talk about is I've commented a couple times over the years around this whole medical loss ratio 
um, deal. And, and basic background was in the Affordable Care Act, it, they set up a requirement. It was a means to try to ensure that health plans spent a certain percentage of their money and what they felt was an appropriate percentage of their money from premiums on medical care and not allow them to, to just deny care. And that's how they made money. And so what they did was arbitrarily, and I believe it's arbitrary, maybe it wasn't, they set these parameters that it, they had to spend 80% in certain markets and 85% in other markets on what were called medical losses to, for the medical loss ratio. And then anything above that would be to cover administration and marketing, and then profits would come out of the top of that. So, um, but 80%, and there were arguments over what fell into the medical loss ratio and what wouldn't. So obviously if you had a claim for a broken arm or a surgery or a drug, that would fall in the medical loss ratio. But they also allowed originally the inclusion of some quality programs. So if you were doing some programs to improve quality, those could also fall in the medical loss ratio. But what the medical loss ratio really did was, if, the, if, if we think about the fact that there's fairly good data that 30% of healthcare is waste, fraud, and abuse, if you're if you're go in there and take that out, you would in essence let's say you only spent seventy five percent because you took out a bunch of overutilization, that five percent would would be would be rebated back, and so it it sort of set up a system I believe where the insurers had this in order to see growth had to see healthcare costs continue to climb, um, and but it's getting looked at a little differently now, and I think the new administration and uh, CMS and others are looking at this, and this apparently only impacts right now Medicare Advantage, but they are allowing for the efforts to go find the fraud to fall within the medical loss ratio and add that to that um, below the line cost. So if you're if you're doing some analytics, if you've got people hunting out, you know, overutilization fraud, those costs, just like quality improvement costs, can now count towards the MLR. And the other thing that was announced, which is sort of along the lines of a lot of what this administration is doing, was this the idea, we're going to just simplify all these regs, you're over, you're over-regged, and uh, obviously it's debatable in certain areas. What they've done with the MLR is they've essentially very simplified what the plans have to report. It's basically only four items, including, you know, what's your medical loss ratio, not maybe how you got there, what, what's in it, you know, did you count it right, although they, they can go back and audit it. And, and go in and look deeper to make sure that those numbers you report are correct. But they really simplified the report and that they now only require health plans to submit four items um, to meet the requirements uh, for their MLR reporting each year. And, and for those who, who may not be familiar with the fine print here, the Affordable Care Act established these thresholds, uh, medical loss ratio th uh, thresholds, I think at what, 15% for large group employer groups and 80% for uh, small group plans. Is that correct? And if you don't hit those thresholds, counting, counting what are eligible expenses, then you have to rebate uh, the savings to your membership, right? Correct. So it was the 85% or the reverse of the 15 and 80%, right, within the medical as medical costs. You had to hit those numbers in spending right. out of the premium dollars, or then you gave it back to the individual or to the uh, employer group. Correct. Right. Right, 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 which sounds good, but created a lot of creative sandbagging of what would otherwise be strangely thought to be included in the MLR ratio. Is is that some of the concern? Yeah, and, and if you think about it, too, um, there's no magic in an individual number in this case, and 
there may be a range. Maybe somebody has a has has done some things to go out and create a healthier population. Um, maybe they help people save a lot of money on their pharmacy costs, and suddenly they spend less. So so maybe the health plan should be able to share in some of those. And that's why I think a set fixed number is not such a good idea. But perhaps something maybe a, maybe it's a range that uh, that the medical loss ratio needs to fall in to meet the requirements. And those are some of the shared savings models that we're seeing in accountable care organizations, at least in some pair arrangements. If they create savings above a certain threshold, then there's a 50-50 split between the health plan and the provider group. Right. And and there's also a question about, you know, when you, let's say you're a, a, a MA plan and you have an 85% medical loss ratio requirement or 80%, and, and you then go ahead and fully capitate somebody below that they can keep those savings, you know, so there are ways to, uh, for provider groups to, to keep the savings. And you're seeing some of that now. And in particular, if you think about it, if a health plan owns a provider group, is there a way to then use it that way mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. and have a fully capitated group that you own that is, is uh, spending less and you're keeping the profits through that fully capitated group. Okay, more will be revealed there. So on to our next topic, the repeal of the individual mandate and its impact. What do you got there? Yeah, this is uh, one that, that you know, a, a major piece of the Affordable Care Act was this idea that we've got to get these individuals, and in particular the healthy young individuals, into the pool, or the pool will end up being only those who have illness and are sick, and obviously that's not uh, a, a sustainable model. And so to do that, the Affordable Care Act set up these individual mandates that if you don't buy insurance, you've got to pay a penalty. Um, and whether you like it or not, and obviously there are issues around how some of the, the rates were set or the allowance for elderly versus younger and how much of a, a spread there could be, but it, it essentially, the administration has said, you know, well, it actually went through with the tax law and the tax law repealed the individual mandate requirement. So it, now if you're an individual and you don't buy health insurance, you're not going to be penalized. And it's pretty obvious what the impact of that will be. And a number of people have written some very good articles on that and said, look, we're going to see, I think the CBO weighed into, we're going to see drops in the enrollment rates for those individuals, particularly the healthy young individuals, and uh, that may make the entire uh, insurance pool unsustainable. So it'll be interesting to watch. That may be the way to death knell some of this stuff is to have gotten rid of the mandate. People don't pay the penalty. They don't sign up. And now you just have people who obviously need the insurance are in the pool, but the pool is not at an appropriate level for reimbursement and can't survive. And and this is perhaps one of the least understood and most complex part or provisions within the Affordable Care Act, which is if you don't have an incentive for younger, healthier populations to enroll in these plans, then you've essentially created a high-risk pool that will ultimately descend to a de- an underwriting death spiral. And, and unfortunately... Um, even though this one it was originally proposed, it was uh, the brainchild of the Heritage Foundation, and it was seen as a sort of market solution to the problem of escalating health insurance premiums. But somehow in the mishmash here, we fast forward, and the uh, 
uh, on the ideal on the ideological debate side, it, this was seen as typical of government overreach and micromanagement by the feds, when in fact, this is simply a principle of actuarial science. And uh, unfortunately, the science and the professional arguments in favor of uh, creating a balanced risk pool didn't didn't win out in a in a, unfortunately a political um, kind of banter and uh, uh, you know a political argument that just descended into finger pointing and not rational thinking. Right, and I, and and it really is a you know it's it's been political for a long time around healthcare, obviously, and whether it's the uh, the the lower rates that ACA set up for a senior, which needed to be fairly highly subsidized by younger people that folks didn't like, and that was a sort of a political decision, or this political decision, at some point, we need some folks to just come together and put together a rational approach to deal with the entire system to allow people to be insured. The ideas of the Affordable Care Act of getting everybody coverage is good. That's, we, we need that. Right. Other, developing, other, uh, other developed countries do that. Um, and, and we should be working towards how we get some sort of universal coverage in this country a at the same time recognizing that you can't just universally cover everybody without controlling costs. So you need to put the two together and come up with a reasonable and rational way to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is almost the stealth, effectively a stealth repeal of the Affordable Care Act, albeit in the form of this tax bill that just got passed. Now, the American Academy of Actuaries weighed in here, as did the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Tax uh, Joint Committee on Taxation. What, what, were the, what was their take? That essentially, what this is going to cost too is millions of healthier people aren't going to purchase insurance. You know, as you would expect, why should I purchase it now? I, I feel good. I'm healthy, you know? And uh, and that just is not is not a, a wise thing for an insurance market. And so it it I, and, and the funny thing is, Greg, I love it when when we could talk about this and say, well, it's a stealth thing. But I think our president might have said something affected. Hey, we just repealed the Affordable Care Act by putting this tax bill through. Although it didn't, it you know it took this one piece out. Um, and it's pretty obvious to, to those, at least in the industry, and I think many outside, that that this was uh, not some subversive approach to try to get rid of it, but an actual, hey, this is what they're doing, <laughs> and here it is. Well, if, right, if there are major pillars, yeah, if there are major pillars to the ACA, it's one, the employer mandate, and two, the individual mandate, so if you whack those, you will guarantee, essentially, the forecast that Trump's been uh, predicting, which is an uh, underwriting death spiral. Yeah, death spiral, and then, and then as part of this also, I think he's decided he's not going to fund the insurers for their uh, the uh, the the piece that they would get when they uh, were overpaying for healthcare because they weren't sure of what the uh, risk was they were underwriting, and I think he's also announced that they're, they're not going to cut those checks either. So it's sort of set up a fait accompli by doing that. Yeah. So more more will be revealed, and most likely the rocky road for the Affordable Care Act will continue. So, what's up next? So one of the other things, which is sort of interesting, I've been watching what's been going on at the at CMS and with uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovations, and there was a lot of question of what was going to happen with the with this administration around CMMI. Were they going to kill the, the Innovation Center or this or that? And um, 
they've done a couple things recently that are kind of interesting. One is they put out an RFI for some new ideas in the past uh, last uh, month. I think it was due sometime in December. And um, and it was looking for ideas in a number of ways, health plan ideas, pharmacy ideas, um, unique ways for community-based programs or, or states to do things. And, and, and a request for information is really just a basic fact-finding thing. Just send us anything you got. Let's see. We may use it. We may not. But I thought that was interesting. And you're also hearing now that they're they're pushing states to promote and use more of these 1115 waivers. And the 1115 state waivers allow the states to say, look, these are the Medicaid rules you have, but I'd like to not do that or change that and do something else that's sort of not allowed within the current structure. And they're now asking states to get more you know, innovative and think about different 1115 waivers you'd like to try. And I think that that's going to allow for some innovation potentially for some newer models to emerge and states do things. So at the same time, while you're seeing some of this other stuff going on, like the MLR stuff and things, and you're also seeing and the, you know, the, uh, the uh, individual uh, mandate repeal, you're also seeing these uh, moves to try and, and come up with some different approaches. And uh, and I can agree with that. I think there there needs to be a little bit more flexibility and experimentation. At the same time, ensuring that when these when these waivers are granted, that people still do get access to appropriate care and get appropriate care, uh, et cetera. But I think there are, you know, the current system itself is not is not doing a great job. And uh, whether it's been you know the simple steps to primary care case management or even the the steps to full blown managed care. I think there there are innovations beyond those models because we're still seeing costs continue to go up and our quality has not necessarily gotten better in the United States. So I, I'm happy to see that there's there's a look to um, not not even necessarily, you know, when you're putting an RFI out, you can accept information from anybody. So it doesn't have to be just the big players who are always pushing their same ideas that, uh, you know, if you spend more money in my area, you'll save a boatload over there, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so I think that that's going to be interesting to watch to see what actually comes out of some of these waivers. If we can see some newer ideas or different thoughts or innovative ways to provide services and fund those services and, and potentially even look at things like how do we how do we can how do we get some of these to social determinants of health funded through the healthcare dollars? Maybe those should be in the medical loss ratio. Let's file a waiver and try to do something like that. Um, so I'm excited about seeing some of those things come out of the, the uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid. And it's hard to argue um, the idea of greater flexibility at the state level because, after all, states are considered living laboratories, so to speak. But what's been, uh, to your knowledge, what's been the results uh, to date of these uh, state Medicaid waivers? Where where, where are they showing some real progress uh, versus uh, maybe still struggling? Well, I think some of them have, have, have worked. You know, and some of them haven't just like so, you know, certain waivers, I, I think in total, some of the move to more managed care models have been better than just the straight fee for service Medicaid of the past. Not that every managed care plan or, or model is always great or good, but I think they've been better. I think they've been able to at least begin to focus on moving some statistics and some quality indicators to better status and and helping individuals. Um, 
I think things like tests, and where some of these are still being tested, where you can incent individuals and provide them with some reward for doing the right thing, I think are good things to experiment with. And you're seeing more of that as well in the, both the Medicare and Medicaid space. So um, those are the kinds of things I think I find exciting. And, and ultimately the question is, could you use some of these waivers um, again to, to help individuals and, and further incent them to play an active role in their care, as well as incenting providers to do the right thing. So, you know, we'll still have to wait and see. There's, there, the waivers have gotten us to a certain point. I don't think they've gotten us to a really, really innovative spot. But, but I think now with this interest in more of, in, in more uh, ideas coming up to CMMI. And what's interesting is, and I, um, I, I was up there and met with some of the folks, and they. You know, they said, look, we we don't want to put this idea out as a here's here's the idea we want you to go test. Now go test it. We want the idea to come up to us, bring it to us. We'll say, oh, yeah, well, hey, that's kind of cool. Oh, you found a place to do it. OK, that's great. Let's try that there instead of saying to the states, oh, go do it this way. So I think that's exciting. Well, we'll keep an eye on that as well. So uh, anything else on your on your list? I think those are the key things that you know that that I wanted to get to today in in today's show. We've got obviously 2018 is going to be I think a, an amazing year in healthcare. There's a lot going on. There are a lot of good conferences coming up. I think you're going to come in on a few of those. I'm looking forward to going to some as well. And uh, also just I think the whole area around personalized medicine, health IT, new payment and delivery models. Um, is, is just set to explode. The question is, can it explode in a way that makes a difference in a positive manner? Can we pull it all together and create better systems with it? And that, that's where we really need to get to. And could you go out on a limb here and predict what a ideal model uh, could look like in terms of one that's both sustainable and um, works for both payer and provider? I think... And yeah, I think at the end of the day, I think it, it's going to, you know, I'm playing around with a few of these myself and just how do you create a model? And I'd written a piece called the Accountable Health Organization at one point. I do think these emerging ideas of linking community, payer, member, and provider. And, and I, I do believe the provider should be controlling that care system and that care management. But you've got to bring in all of these community groups. And so how do you create an organization that integrates that whole continuum from, to create, in essence, an entire community of health? And there are some ways to play with it, but I think they can be financed with, with the right setup. And how do you see some of these uh, experimental models in uh, uh, social determinants of health and accountable communities, health communities working or folding into that? I think I think we're taking some initial steps into that. The accountable communities I know out in uh, in, in Washington they have their accountable communities of health for Medicaid, um, and the issue really is they don't have the, the the organization that's accountable to and to setting these things up doesn't control the levers. So I and so I think they're they're great ideas that, that I think those are going to show some improvements, but it's sort of a herding cats approach. Whereas I think if you can bring the funding within that entire 
organization and set it up that way, you'll have more control so and, and get better outcomes. So I think there's still this question as to when you start rolling in social determinants, et cetera, how do you fund it? Who funds it? Who says what needs to get done? You know, are we going to have better health in the community if we put those money, those dollars into sidewalks or if we put those dollars into a clinic or transportation or what? And I think those larger issues are things we need to begin to look at. Okay, Fred. So we're going to wrap this up. I will make mention of two conferences that are going to populate the airwaves here, social media, online print publications for the next uh, week or so. And the first one is the 36th annual J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, which is occurring in San Francisco, California, from January 8th through the 11th. Uh, this has uh, gotten cast as a rather much broader event now known as uh, BioWeekSF.com. Check it out. There are no sh- <laughs> there is no shortage of receptions, uh, day programs, biotech, pharma, health innovation, startup health festival. I mean, it's it's such an event. It's a massive undertaking, and uh, it seems like this is the go-to investor healthcare investor conference of the year. So check that one out. You can just go to jpmorgan.com, query 36th annual healthcare conference. We're going to put up a post on health innovation media with some guides and some useful links and uh, resources for the event. And of course, in in, uh, March, March 19th to the 21st, to be exact, the 18th uh, Population Health Colloquium with uh, Jefferson College of Population Health as the academic partner, kicks off with a rather trophy lineup of speakers. This is the go-to event in population health. So if you have a dog in the hunt there, strongly recommend you checking it out at populationhealthcolloquium.com. So with that, I want to say thank you very much uh, for listening. Uh, This is uh, Fred Goldstein and Greg Masters on Pop Health Week. We do this on a periodic basis, usually Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, and we're going to have a pretty exciting lineup. So with that, I will cue the music, and we will say goodbye for now. Thanks, Fred. Talk to you next time. Fantastic. Thank you, Greg.